I wrote this book because I had gone to Paris several times, and I was wondering if there was a book about Paris in me. This Italian guy wrote me a letter, and he said, I love your books. My favorite part of reading you is that I don't need to use a dictionary. I think this might be my most favorite part of the publishing process. I love it. It feels like getting to touch every word of the book before it goes into the world again. Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks. In this episode, meet authors Gregory Curtis, Lorenzo Carcaterra, and Sarah Santillas. Each of these authors has written a memoir about their experiences of love and loss. To hear these authors read their audiobooks is to be drawn into the intimacy of their experiences and also struck by the universality of grief. Listen in to hear what it was like for them to write their stories and read their audiobooks. Enjoy. Hi, this is Gregory Curtis, author of Paris Without Her, a memoir. I wrote this book because I had gone to Paris several times, and I was wondering if there was a book about Paris in me, but I didn't exactly know what that book would be. I had stayed in Paris in 2014, and late in the fall in 2018, I got an offer from the owners of the apartment where I had stayed in 2014 saying that the apartment would be available the first half of 2019, and did I want it? I wrote back, yes, purposely without thinking. So now I had an apartment in Paris for five months, and what was I going to do? And I began thinking very, very seriously about writing what turned out to be this book, although it took a while for it to form in my mind. And I was talking about it with a friend of mine, Stephen Harrigan, And he suggested the title, Paris Without Her. Somehow that was a defining moment. I was able to think about the book and to roughly imagine what it would be given that title. In recording my book, I was very self-conscious about my French pronunciation. I am anyway, but I've spent enough time in Paris that I forge ahead. And I've found that it's better to go ahead and speak and speak loudly. When I first started going over there, people would often ask me, what, what did you say? And I realized that it wasn't that they had misunderstood me, it was that they couldn't hear me because being shy about my French, I said it softly so as not to spread the the contagion of my pronunciation around. And when I realized that, I started speaking in a more normal tone of voice, if anything, a little louder than normal, and just forged ahead with my pronunciation, and it worked fine. You say a word and you mispronounce it. The listener, if they recognize the word, gives you a break, basically. But the recording does not give you a break. It records what you say, and if what you say is off, it's off. That intimidated me quite a bit until I sort of decided to go ahead and do what I do when I'm speaking normally, which is just go ahead and blast through it, hope for the best. I don't really have anyone in mind that I would prefer to have read the book than me. Knopf sent me samples of two different readers that might be hired to read the book, and they were both fine 
as readers, but it felt very odd to me. This book is so personal, and it's in the first person. I did this, I did that, I thought this, that it just was odd to me to hear these thoughts and these sentences and expressions in the voice of someone else. So that's when I decided, if they would let me, that I wanted to do it myself. And it turned out to be very difficult, very demanding, but I'm glad I did it. I think it will be worth it in the long run. I listen to audiobooks mostly. I listen when I'm driving in my car. Tracy, my wife, my late wife, she liked it too. And I mentioned in the book that several summers she and I drove back and forth to Provincetown, Massachusetts from Austin, Texas, and we listened to audiobooks on the way. We actually listened to a lot of Proust. Books like Proust, War and Peace, these long, long books work well on audio where you just have these long stretches of highway. Thanks for listening to this, and now please listen to a clip from my audiobook. For the first eight months, 2010 was a particularly good year. In April, our daughter Vivian got married. Her husband Jason was a funny, happy, brilliant electrical engineer. Our son Ben performed the ceremony that Vivian and Jason had written. Friends of ours and theirs came from all across the country. When the band began, I danced with the bride and Tracy danced with the groom, and then we traded partners and everyone started dancing. At one point, the aggressive wife of one of our friends was standing so close to a man other than her husband that he was trapped against the wall and was squirming to get away. It was comical. I looked for Tracy just as she was looking for me. When our eyes met, we both began smiling like conspirators. Hi, this is Lorenzo Carcaterra. I'm the author of Three Dreamers, a memoir of family. Over the years, I thought about writing about my grandmother and my mother. My wife passed away in Christmas Eve 2013. These three women, in their own unique way, kind of shaped me and encouraged me to write. My grandmother never read anything as far as I could see. Didn't even know a writer, didn't even know how they made a living. My mother certainly didn't. She lived here for 35 years, didn't speak English. She did read, but, you know, usually Italian religious pamphlets. And then my wife, who was a very gifted editor, at the time I met her, she was the entertainment editor of the Daily News. And I thought it would be a nice way to piece together the three of them. These three women are the reasons I'm here and have had the career I've had, the good and the bad of it. So that was the main reason to write it. And the second reason was I missed them. Nona was a very special person in my life, and I, I think of her every day. Susan was equally special. We spent almost four decades together. And my mother, even though we had an up-and-down relationship, she did her best, and I think in her, in her own way, she pushed and encouraged me. So it's a tribute to those three women. Recording the audiobook, I mean, coming in, I was a little nervous. Uh, not nervous. I was wondering, like, why didn't they get Stanley Tucci or Joe Montaigne? Why me? But I have to say, I enjoyed the whole process, and everyone involved made it really easy. I had a terrific director. You know, now I'm hooked. I'm, you know, I'm a ham to begin with, so the next book, they're going to have to fight not to have me do it.
There are no words or phrases I didn't know how to pronounce in a book, very simply because one of my favorite fan letters, I got, this is my 12th book, and I just finished my 13th, but so I think it was the third or fourth book. This Italian guy wrote me a letter, and he said, I love your books. My favorite part of reading you is that I don't need to use a dictionary. You know, I write for a working-class audience, and when I was a kid, I was fortunate enough to kind of be mentored by Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin when I was at the Daily News as a copy boy, and Pete always said, always know when you sit down to write whatever you're going to write, exactly who you know you're writing for, who is in your mind picking up that book. Now, it doesn't just mean that, you know, only a guy who works construction or is a plumber or somebody's reading me. Other people obviously can and will read me. But I like the fact that I know exactly in my mind who I'm directing that story to, to working people. And I grew up with them, both here and in Italy. So I, I get them. And I understand them. I mean, I'm never going to do a story about some professor in, uh, you know, New England somewhere who's blocked on a novel for 28 years. That doesn't interest me. And I do find those books on the occasion I've had to look at them, you know, to be pretty boring, actually. So I always know who I'm writing for, or I, I hope I am anyway. Frederick Forsyth's memoir was terrific, and it was read by him. I mean, I think he's a great writer. I think Day of the Jackal is one of the best thrillers ever made. I believe he wrote that book in like 44 days. And I read it as a young man, and then I reread it about 15, 20 years later. And then I, I read it again after I listened to the memoir. I mean, you, I know Charles de Gaulle was not assassinated, but three quarters of the way through that book, you are convinced that the jackal is going to kill Charles de Gaulle. That memoir was very instructive in how to become a writer, you know, what goes into being the writer's life and how you tell the stories. I mean, his thrillers have been phenomenal. And then I listened to a few James Patterson books. I have to be honest, I'd never read a Patterson book. And then I think a friend gave me three or four audio books to listen in the car, and I was hooked. I mean, the guy can move a story. There's a reason he's selling like 100 million books a day, it looks like. He's a great, great storyteller. You know, it just made the hour and a half drive I used to have to make a pleasure to the point where you drive by your exit sometimes just to hear the next couple of chapters. I'd like to listen to audiobooks in the car, especially if I'm alone. If there are other people in the car, they're going to talk. And I remember years ago, I had this conversation with Richard Price. When we were kids and went to the movies, it was like church to us. It had to be quiet. And that's how I treat listening to an audiobook in the car. I don't want any, you know, outside distractions. So if you have somebody in the car, my kids always tease me about this. You know, if we get in the car, you know, Nick right away wants to put on whatever hip-hop station he can find on my Sirius network, which means it's going to take me, when he's not in the car, about three hours to find CNN again. So I just tell him as they get in, listen, I'm listening to this particular audiobook, and I just would like to listen to it. And inevitably, five minutes into it, you know, they start talking among themselves, the cell phones ring, and you go, okay, this is not going to work. So the best way to listen to an audiobook, in my opinion, is in a car, by yourself, windows up, air conditioner and down. That's, you know, once we get rid of the pandemic. Now that you've heard me go on and on, here's a clip from Three Dreamers, a memoir of family. I think back and see the many faces and hear the many voices that have come into my life through the years. Some were instructive, some destructive, and some reached out a guiding hand that helped me more than I could ever thank them for. But the course of my life's voyage, the foundation for the career I have forged, rest in the hands of three very strong-willed and determined women, each one very different from the other. 
They helped direct me, each in her own way, toward an honest and productive life. Hi, this is Sarah Santillis, author of Stranger Care, a memoir of loving what isn't ours. I wrote my book as a love letter to our foster daughter, Coco. I wanted to write a book that could mother her when I wasn't allowed to mother her anymore. I wanted to write a book that might make a better world where she could be safe no matter where she landed. I also wrote it to try to process what was happening, to try to understand, and I wrote it in my grief because when I was working on the page, it brought our foster daughter close to me even when she wasn't with us anymore. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be amazing. But I can't really say it in one word because it was also really emotional and intense and beautiful. I think this might be my most favorite part of the publishing process. I love it. It feels like getting to touch every word of the book before it goes into the world again. I love collaborating with a team. Writing is such a solo act until it gets to the publishing part, until it gets to the editing part. And the audiobook is so alive and vibrant, it feels like a really great antidote to the privacy of writing. I realized I had trouble pronouncing basically every name of every theorist that I refer to in the book. (laughs) I only read them, so I pronounce them in my head. And I've actually taught a lot of them in classrooms. And I think my poor students, I now realize I've been telling them how to say the names wrong. Like I used to say Louis Agassi, that racist eugenicist that I write about in here. But it's actually Louis Agassi, like the tennis player. So that happened a lot. I'm proud that I was able to keep my shit together during reading this. It's a really emotional book. This is the most intimate book I've ever written. There's a lot of grief in its pages and a lot of joy and a lot of intensity. And I'm excited that listeners will get to hear that emotion in my voice. I can't really imagine this book being read by anyone other than me because it's so close to me, so personal. And I wanted to be able to capture what it felt to live through this in the sound of my voice. We were talking when we were making the audiobook, and Sarah Jaffe, the producer of this book, said that audiobooks are, in the pandemic, one of the only ways that we get to be intimate with people we don't know, where their voices are literally coming into our bodies in some kind of way. And so it feels like a real privilege to get to whisper this story into people's ears and for them to get to hear the emotion in my voice. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, I would cast one of our social workers as the narrator because I don't think they're ever going to read this book, and I really want them to read this book because I feel like they played a huge role in the trauma that happened in these pages, and I kind of want them to have to read it in that way and to have to confront what happened and to maybe think about it in a new way. I recently read Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. It's a novel, and I thought it was extraordinary. I'm reading right now George Saunders' new book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, and I think it's amazing. It's like a masterclass in writing, and he's one of the most generous humans on the page and off the page, so it's a a real gift to be able to read that book. And I also just started reading the 90-day novel by Alan Watt, because I think I might be writing a novel, and I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm finding the book really helpful. My favorite place to read is in bed before falling asleep, and this is actually a real tension in our marriage, because right before falling asleep, Eric's favorite thing to do is talk about our days, and my favorite thing to do is read. And so he talks to me, and I just keep saying, reading, 
reading. <laughs> and now, please listen to a clip from my audiobook. I always imagined myself a mother. I kept a list of possible names for my future children, pictured myself pregnant and listening to fast fetal heartbeats, looking in wonder at the image on the screen. But I had reservations. I'd absorbed the messages in the cultural ether that framed motherhood as both holy work and trap. My ambivalence grew. When Eric and I married in 2004, we agreed we'd eventually have a child, but we were busy doing other things. Writing dissertations, writing books, chasing academic jobs around the country. And by the time we started talking in earnest about becoming parents, I was in my mid-30s, and Eric was close to 40. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening. For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash nextlisten.